This Parsha podcast is sponsored by the Gelb, Goldman, and Shacknafsi children in honor of our parents, David and Susan Gelb, wishing them and all of Klai Yisrael and the entirety of the Jewish people a happy and healthy new year. And from all of us here at Torch, we thank them for their generosity and friendship. Now, this is most likely to be the last new episode of the Parsha podcast before Shoshana. There may yet still be a special Rosh Hashanah Parsha podcast episode. That is still up in the year. But regardless, I want to wish the entire Parsha podcast family to be blessed with a Shana Tova Umetuka. May you merit a happy, healthy, sweet new year. All the blessings in the world should be delivered to you and your family. May you emerge from the Day of Judgment and Yom Kippur with a clean slate and a year replete with all manner of goodness. And I always say that the Parsha podcast is like this big, globally distributed family. Well, if I pray for my own personal family, my biological family on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, I figured I should extend it to my virtual Parsha podcast family too. And therefore, this year, if you would like me to include you in my prayers on the upcoming high holidays, Please email me with your names if you have the complete Hebrew name, which is your Hebrew name, your parents' Hebrew names. That's best. Otherwise, you can send me whatever name you have. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are finally here. This is the anti-penultimate Parsha podcast, the third to last episode of the fifth cycle of the Parsha podcast. I am so excited. I am so delighted. I am so overjoyed. Let's begin. We have a double Parsha this week, and it's an absolutely lovely and dandy double Parsha. Parshas Nitzavim and Parshas Vayelech. And I always get the sense, reading this Parsha, these Parshios, how the themes of what we read in the Parsha are perfectly suited for the time of year. You know, the Torah is so well designed. The season of repentance coincides with the reading of the Parsha of Repentance. It is synchronized beautifully with the yearly schedule. So I feel like if we are ever going to read the Parsha and try to absorb its lessons, now is the best time. This is the most topical Parsha for the time of year that we are about to embark upon, the season of Repentance, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Our Parsha begins with a very interesting get-together at the very end of Moshe's life. Moshe gathers the entire nation. Everyone's there. Moshe's about to pass. And Moshe's giving them his final message. And he gathers the nation. And he gives them a warning against idolatry. When they are going to enter the land, after Moshe passes under the leadership of Joshua, there's going to be all kinds of new challenges for them. And Moshe's warning them not to descend to the ways of idolatry. Now, this is actually not so new. We've seen, of course, over the course of Deuteronomy, many warnings against idolatry. What is unique about this one is that Moshe is describing the anatomy of how people descend into idolatry. You know, how is it possible for someone who was under the aegis of Moshe, the generation that witnessed all the miracles and had such a transformative leader, witnessed Sinai, the manna, leading the nation is Moshe to be followed by Joshua, surrounded by 
prophets and ever-present miracles with the tabernacle at the center of the nation? How could someone like that succumb to idolatry? And Moshe explains. So Parashah chapter 29, we'll start from verse 15. Moshe tells them as follows. For you know how we dwelled in the land of Egypt. We used to be in Egypt four years prior. And how we passed through the midst of the nations through whom you passed. We've been around some pretty bad neighborhoods. And you saw their abominations and their detestable idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were with them. Perhaps there is among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from being with Hashem Yadrad. And they want to go serve idols. Maybe there is something corrupt here amongst us. And this person will say, you know what? Things will be fine with me. I'll be able to hide. God won't punish me. And Moshe proceeds to tell the nation the consequence of an individual, a person, a man or woman, a family, a tribe, following the ways of the idols. It's going to be disastrous and catastrophic, not only for them, but for the whole nation. And that continues throughout the 20s of chapter 29. So this actually breaks down how exactly someone would make such a blunder. Moshe tells him, you lived in Egypt. It's a land full of idolaters. You traversed through many idolatrous nations and you saw their abominable idols. And maybe there's someone, a man or a woman, a family or a tribe, whose heart is going to be swayed by what they saw. And they want to follow the idolatrous ways of the Gentiles. And you think you're safe? You're not. This person will be punished, and the rest of the nation will also be punished. The consequences of violating the covenant are severe. So that's the beginning of our Parsha. Moshe has the whole nation there, and this is his message that he shares with the nation. Now, there's a very difficult question with what Moshe is telling them. He tells them, you were in Egypt, and you also went through other nations, and you saw their abominable things and their detestable idols. And Rashi in verse 16 tells us that the word you saw their detestable things, that's the same word for vermin and rodents. Says Rashi, the idols that you saw were as repugnant as rodents. And you saw their detestable things, says Rashi. You saw things that were malodorous and revolting like excrement. This verse is describing what our nation saw by the Egyptians and by the nations through which we traversed. Their practices, these idolaters, were loathsome, were disgusting. Their idols were detestable. Their ways were like vermin and rodents and as detestable as excrement. Nevertheless, Moshe says, there's a concern. Oh no, what's going to be? Maybe there's a person, a man or a woman, a family or a tribe who will say, oh, I saw these things. I want to join. Where do I sign? I too want to pursue the ways of the idolaters. Wait a minute. If the idolaters' ways are execrable, are detestable like excrement and rodents, why would anyone want to join such a group? Moshe is telling us something very surprising. 
We saw their abominable and detestable idols. It is as disgusting and putrid as rodents and excrement. That's the definition of what we saw. That is the objective truth. This is established. Everyone agrees upon it. Yet, there might be someone, a man or woman, a family, or even a whole tribe that says, I want that. How could anyone want that? Why would anyone want that? Moshe's concerned, gathers the whole nation. Come, I have a very important message to tell you. Moshe's concerned that someone will see these awful, disgusting, detestable, revolting, revile some things, yet will be compelled to go join that. And everything that follows, the whole beginning of our parsha, the first parsha, it's only because that there is a risk that there's a person or family or tribe that they're going to choose to adopt these execrable ways. And Moshe warns them, you can't hide. God will punish him. God will punish everyone. God will destroy the land. And everything because someone was drawn to follow the ways that are as detestable as rodents and excrement. This is astonishing. This is something that Moshe needs to warn the entire nation about. This is a real concern. You and I would say, hey, who in the right mind would want to follow something as repugnant as this? Yet Moshe gathers everyone together. His last party message is, you saw these disgusting things, and there's going to be, or potentially there is a risk, that there's someone, maybe even a family, or even a tribe that says, I want that. Evidently, there is a real concern because there's a process by which something that is objectively revolting and revilesome and disgusting, there is a process through which that becomes palatable and even desirable. There is a force that can get people to do something quite inexplicable. And that concern is so real that Moshe needs to gather the whole people to warn the whole nation about it in order to steal them and to reinforce them to not fall into this trap. So what's going on? What is Moshe worried about? So I want to share with you two interrelated approaches that I sought to answer this very difficult question. The first approach will demonstrate what it is contingent upon. How does such a thing happen? How does a person, a man or a woman, a family or a tribe, get seduced by something as abominable as the idols that they saw in Egypt and in the lands through which they traversed? The second approach will burrow into the infrastructure and psychology of how it actually works. And I think that this is a very valuable study because guess what? It turns out that us today, we've been enlightened. We follow our intellect ostensibly. We use cold reason. We're scientific. But you know what? We're just as easily manipulable as our ancestors of your As shocking as this sounds, we too are sometimes seduced by the rodents and refuse. So let's begin. The first idea 
is shared by a collection of great sages, and they all say the same idea in different ways. But what they explain is that there is a progression. What you see affects you in ways that you can't even calculate. What you see penetrates within you. Your eyes are the portals to the outside world. And the outside world, with all its mishagas, with all its detestable and objectionable and abominable things, can sometimes infect you and infiltrate you via those portals. Everything here got started because the nation was in a foreign land, they were in Egypt, and they passed through many different nations to get to where they are now. And they saw all kinds of crazy things. And this would all be avoided if we didn't see their rodent-like and execrable idols. But once you see something, it has a foothold within you. That thing that you saw is now behind enemy lines. And it can sabotage you from within. This is how espionage works. Espionage is to try to burrow as deep as you can into enemy territory and to try to corrupt things from within. To try to force the enemy to do things that are against his best wishes. Yes, it's disgusting and revolting. But once you saw it, that force, that experience makes a beachhead within you. And you are now vulnerable to doing things that are objectively bad. The great Musser masters pointed out that there is a progression. The verse starts off, You saw shikutseyem ve'es giluleyem. You saw the things that were as disgusting and as revolting as rodents and refuse. And then the verse continues, Eitz va'even, wood and stone. The first time you saw it, it was revolting. It was completely undesirable. The second time it's Eitz va'even, it's wood and stone, it's kind of neutral. And the verse concludes, Kesef v'zahav asherimahem, silver and gold that were with them. By the time you see it a third time, it's already precious and valuable and desirable like silver and gold. Very quickly, the things that were abominable can become acceptable and even desirable. This is a bit of a scary idea. We are actually quite fickle and manipulable. When we see something objectionable, first time it sends shock waves through us. But before you know it, you develop a taste for it. And it becomes golden. And we adopt it. We get brainwashed very easily. Whatever you see rewires your brain and changes your perspective, changes how you see the world. And we get swayed very, very easily. And the fastest way to do that is via what we see. You kind of wonder if you are a thinking person, 
and you are intelligent, and you are educated, you would never be influenced by a television commercial. Oh no, I'm just going to research which product is the best. That's what we all think. But there's a reason why in the United States they spend north of $70 billion a year on television ads. If your product is so good, it sells itself, right? You don't need to hawk it on television. But the truth is, it works. What you see penetrates you. Everyone is susceptible to this kind of brainwashing. And even mediocre products, even bad products, if I could get it in front of your eyeballs, if it can be placed in front of what you see, it's within your head, it has a beachhead, and eventually it'll become desirous. In our family, we don't have a television. We don't have a Netflix account. And the way I like to think of it is your eyes are like a drawbridge. You get to choose what goes into your brain, what goes into your soul, what infects you, what infiltrates you. In my opinion, this verse and this whole episode, well, this is a whole nation. Maybe you saw some awful things, some abominable things, but you'll want it. Because once you open up the drawbridge and you let it in, now you're in trouble. You have to be very, very careful who and what you let in. If you see bad things, you get very quickly desensitized and calloused and what was previously unthinkable and revolting and completely anathema suddenly and quite quickly becomes desirable. So yes, when you passed through Egypt and all those other countries and you saw all those horrific things that you saw and a mere cursory study of the idolatrous practices of your would make it abundantly clear to everyone that those things were really objectionable to everyone, to all, completely detestable and abominable. Nevertheless, you saw it. It started off being awful. Before you know it, maybe there's a man or a woman, a family, or a tribe that says, where do I sign? Because that is how powerful it could be. Once you see it, the drawbridge is opened, the enemy has entered, and you may make very poor decisions now that there is an enemy behind your lines. I think there's a lot more to say on the subject, but I want to get to approach number two to answer this question, because this is going to take it a bit deeper. I saw a very deep psychological insight that uh, my grandfather wrote in the name of his teacher, the great Rabbi Rucham. Listen to this. He asks our question, if what we saw by the Egyptians and the other nations, if it's so revolting... Why is there a need to have such a long and severe and harsh warning and the threats and the consequences and all that? Why is Moshe gathering everyone to warn them about succumbing to the detestable and abominable idols of yore? So he says something amazing. Listen to this. 
What is pursuit of honor? What does it mean when someone covets honor? So, of course, we think it means to be praised and to be lauded and to be heralded and to be accorded the great honor in shul to get the most prestigious aliyah to sit in the front. The great Rebbe says as follows. The essence of the pursuit of honor is that a person feels compelled that other people should hold that person in high regard. I don't want other people to think I'm a lowlife, I'm dishonest, I'm unsophisticated, I'm uncultured, I'm uncouth. I don't want other people to view me as unintelligent or bearing bad character, being unrefined. We want people to like us. We want people to respect us. We want people to think positively of us. And that applies across the board. If there's a person in shul or one of your friends or someone in your workplace who doesn't like you, doesn't think you're that talented, it kind of irks you. It causes you pain. And that's if there is an individual that's like you. It's painful. But how much more painful is it to have an entire nation think of me in a contemptible, in a mocking, in a deriding fashion? What happened? We have this nation. It's an itinerant nation. They're wandering through the lands of other people. They were in Egypt. And there are all kinds of other nations through whom they traversed. And all those nations look at us as unsophisticated, as uncultured, as undeveloped, as people following this arcane, backwards religion, only one invisible God. We eschew their pagan deities, all that they value we repudiate. We don't partake in their revelries, and they look at us with contempt. They don't know our nation. They don't know about Sinai. They don't know about the Exodus, all the miracles. They don't know about Abraham. They're completely unaware of our greatness. All they see is this wandering nation of uncultured and unsophisticated people who refuse to buy into their idolatries. And that contempt that they show towards us causes us a lot of pain. The fact that we are undesirable outsiders, that, it really hurts us. It irritates us. It rankles us. For some, the pain of exclusion, of being different, of being looked down upon, of being humiliated, that pain is so great that they say, I don't care, I'll, I'll swallow those rodents. Yes, it's disgusting, but who cares? I want to be accepted as a member of the greater society. You know what? It's objectively repugnant. It's execrable. It's detestable. But so what? If that's my key to citizenship, if that's the key that it takes to make me accepted as part of society, I'll do whatever it takes. And that's the concern. 
you're walking throughout the nations, you're a nation that must live in the environs of other nations, and you are going to crave acceptance. That's what Moshe is warning the people. And even though what they're selling is objectively detestable and abominable, it's like the rodents and the excrement. No one wants it, but you'll want it because you want to be accepted. And there's an interesting curiosity here, and this relates to a theme that we've talked about many times, the theme of the barbell. The barbell always has to have both sides balanced. A person's greatest strength is also the area where that person is most vulnerable. Our nation is lauded as a people who live in solitude. We were founded by Abraham, who was called the Hebrew, Ivri, Abraham the Ivri, which means from the other side. Abraham was willing to stand on one side of the river, on one side of the theological divide, while the entire world opposed him. The fact that they ridiculed him and sardonically mocked him, that didn't budge him a millimeter. He was guided by the crystal clear logic of his beliefs. He is not going to just go with the flow. He's not going to conform to go with everyone else when it's against what he knows to be true. He would never imbibe of the execrable idolatry just to get along with everyone else and to not be labeled a kook. That was the founding of our nation. And that's our greatest strength, but that also is where we're most vulnerable. Where a person's superpower lies, there lies his test. This is our superpower to be able to think differently, to be able to view the world differently than everyone else, to be on the other side of the river, which is, by the way, why Israel is the startup nation. We're a nation of rebels. Abraham rebelled against the prevailing ways of his times. He said, I don't care what y'all do. I'm not partaking in this revolting behavior. And his descendants have a knack for not accepting the world as it is. But that is precisely where we are going to be tested. And Moshe knew this. And that's why he warned them. He saw these nations. And you will crave acceptance and integration. And that can make you do very silly and stupid things. Things that are objectively disgusting. And I am hereby forewarning you that if you go ahead with that, the consequences will be severe. This is our Achilles heel. This is why our nation sometimes fails to live up to our ambitions or our mission statement. I read an amazing line in my grandfather's notes on this subject. He says, if not for this pursuit of honor and acceptance, our nation would never lose its heightened, exalted stature. The truth is, my grandfather says, amongst us, amongst the Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we don't have any heretics. We want acceptance. And if acceptance is contingent upon heresy, okay, we'll do that. But ultimately, we all know Moshe emes v'toro, so emes. Moshe is true as Torah is true. But we have this one shortcoming, one weakness, 
that we crave acceptance amongst the nations. This is a steer idea, but I think it's also a bit comforting. Moshe is not worried that the whole nation will erode. He says, maybe there's a man or a woman or a family or a tribe. There are elements of our people who potentially may succumb, but those are the outliers. There's always going to be a core, the nation itself, who are faithful to the Abrahamic ideal of being comfortable in solitude, of being comfortable on the other side of the river, of being comfortable being alone, being an iconoclast, and not giving in to what everyone else says, and caring nary a bit about what others think of us. And my grandfather pointed out that this reality, that we have this intense craving to be accepted by society at large, in Messianic times, it's going to be the opposite. Where the nations will crave to be accepted by us and will want to voluntarily destroy and repudiate their idolatry, that is a sign of the Messianic era. In fact, that's what we pray for on Rosh Hashanah. And if you are an astute observer of the religious world globally, you do get the sense that this is actually happening as we speak. But wow, what an amazing and terrifying idea. Our greatest weakness as a nation is perfectly mirrored to our greatest strength. Even when something is objectively objectionable, it is execrable like excrement. It is revolting like a rodent. It is a wretched, repulsive refuse. Nevertheless, it can harbor an almost irresistible urge if that prevents me from being labeled as a backwater creationist. Oh, you think there's only one God? You fool! Don't you know the power of Molech or Baal or Peor or Marculus? You're so unsophisticated. You're such a primitive, uncultured savage. When we hear that from the other nations, it's a very potent message. People are terrified to be God forbid, labeled as a, quote, creationist. I'm not a fundamentalist wacko. I'm not one of those crazies. Our nation craves to be viewed as not crazy. We don't want to be considered fanatics. We want to be accepted and integrated. And even though this is actually our greatest strength, because we came from Abraham, was willing to stand up to everyone, in the same token, this is our greatest vulnerability. And this is the danger that Moshe is warning us all about. The social pressure that you are going to face, Moshe tells us, is immense. And that is such a powerful force. It may get us to do things that are totally ludicrous at face value. In the yeshiva in Navardak 100 years ago, they made a big effort to impart this message in their students to train them to become impervious to what other people think about them. 
And the story goes that in the Navardic Yeshiva, they would walk into a pharmacy and they go to the clerk and say, can I buy a hammer and nails? It's like walking into a food establishment and saying, where's the automotive section? And of course, the person will look at you like you're crazy. But you do that five, ten times, and you know what? You stop to care as much what other people think about you. When a child sees something that their friend has, but they don't, invariably they go over to mom or dad and say, hey, can I get this? Can I get that? And I know my parents used to tell me, just because everyone else has something or everyone else does something, that's not a good reason for us to do it, for us to have it. I think today, the science is unimpeachable. That is a very bad idea to give young children their own mobile device, their own iPad, their own phone, smartphone, because it's really destructive. It erodes their brain. It makes them incapable of concerted, straining thought. Instagram makes your life less exciting and enjoyable. And it causes all kinds of feelings of inadequacy and all kinds of eating disorders. And when you get addicted to scrolling and to seeing all these little, tiny little hits of dopamine, real life can never live up to it. And you become someone who's very dependent on the approval of others and you need that light or whatever. It's a very bad thing. Science is clear. But everyone in my class has one. And I don't want to be the nerd that doesn't have a phone. But is that how we make decisions? Are our children trained to be able to say that what's best for me is what I'm doing and I don't judge myself? I don't measure myself by someone else's yardstick. I had a conversation with someone today. This guy tells me, Rabbi, you're cheap because you don't get a new car. Now, I drive a perfectly functional 2012 Toyota Camry. It's paid off. And yes, the fender fell off and I fastened back to the car with very strong screws. It doesn't look perfect. But I was thinking how lucky I am that I don't even want a new car. I don't have the slightest desire to get a new car. Nothing. Maybe this is because my parents trained me to not measure myself by other people's standards or expectations. And I had an idea about this as well in a religious sense. Maybe it's a really good idea for people to wear a yarmulke publicly or to wear their tzitzis out. Not because it's so important, you know, to wear tzitzis as a mitzvah, to wear a yarmulke is a custom, but you don't need to wear the tzitzis out and you're not violating any law by not wearing a yarmulke. But maybe there's an element of this in doing that, training yourself to be proud of who you are and not to be swayed or impacted by the people. Do what's right. And you know what? If it earns you the ridicule or snide comments or mockery or people don't look at you the way that you would like, you don't feel like you're as accept. so what? Learn to be a little bit like Abraham on the other side of the river and to be happy with that and to be proud 
that you were doing what you decided to do and you didn't outsource your decisions to other people. I have a theory I want to float to anyone who's still listening, although at the end of the podcast, let me know what you think of this. Maybe we could flip this whole idea on its head. We're worried that the idolaters are going to look at us and say, oh, look at these Jews. They believe in this antiquated idea of the one invisible God. They don't know about idolatry. And we're worried that that mockery and that ridicule and that humiliation is going to make us do things that are just terrible ideas, that are repulsive, that are detestable. What if we flip this on its head? What if we make a mockery of what the heretics believe? Oh, you think the whole world happened randomly? It's all here for nothing? You actually believe that? Maybe we can mock them and ridicule them. Not to cause other people pain, that's not our way, but to make a social stigma for people to have heresy. This story, Moshe is telling us that there's a social stigma of you not adopting idolatry. You're going to pay a social cost to live the way that you know is right. Maybe it makes sense, this is just me speculating, to make, on the flip side, if we want to change, so to speak, the game a little bit, maybe we can make it a stigma for the heretics. And say something like this. Can you believe it? There's still people who believe this? There's still people who believe that a trillion different species, and by the way, not a single one of them, if we tried, if we combined the collective talents and abilities and technology of all of humanity, we can create a single gnat, a single moth, a single tiny bug. But really, you actually believe this? That it all happened because of random mutations? Can you believe there's still a fool out there? Who actually believes, like, really? You actually believe that? I think this whole concept that to live our way of life, we have to pay a social cost. There's going to be a stigma that may be very painful for us. That is something that could answer the age-old question. Why are there so many bright scientists who are atheists? If it's so logical that the world has a creator... Why don't they believe it? So, of course, none of them can hold a candle to Isaac Newton or to Maimonides. But so what? The Torah is telling us that the impulse to conform to idolatry, to the socially and culturally acceptable dogma of the times, that impulse is so strong, it totally overpowers reason and logic and objective truth. This is a scary idea. And this is something that us as descendants of Abraham are particularly vulnerable to. But now we know, and we are better prepared. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q, answers and questions. And our parsha has a very iconic statement where Moshe tells the Jewish people, this is chapter 30, verse 11. This commandment that I command you today, it's not hidden from you. 
It's not distant. It's not in the heaven for you to say who can ascend to the heaven for us and take it for us so we can listen to it and perform it. Nor is it across the sea for you to say who can cross to the other side of the sea for us and take it for us so we can listen to it and perform it. Oh no, this matter is very near to you, in your mouth, and in your heart, to perform it. So there's this mitzvah that we may say or we may think, we may suspect it's far away, it's in heaven, it's across the sea, but no, it's within us, in our mouth, in our heart to do it. Now, what mitzvah is Moshe talking about? So you look at Rashi, Rashi says it's the mitzvah of Torah study. You look at the Ramban, the Ramban says that it's the mitzvah of repentance. Let's go with Rashi just for the sake of this question. The Torah, it's not hidden from you. It's not distant. It's not in the heavens. It's not across the sea. Oh no, the Torah is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart to perform it. This idea that the Torah is not in the heavens is an aphorism that appears many places in Jewish literature. But if you look at Rashi's comment in verse 12, you find something fascinating. The Torah is not in the heavens. Rashi says like this, if it was in the heavens, you would have to go up to heaven and get it and study it. Yes, it's not in the heavens. But if it was in the heavens, you'd have to go up to heaven and go get it and study it. It's important for us to remember that this is not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole, but it sounds so silly. And of course, this is counterfactual. The Torah is not in the heaven. Barashi is telling us that in that counterfactual world where the Torah was in the heavens, we would be expected to ascend to heaven and to go get it. And the question is, what kind of expectation is that? Are we all supposed to become astronauts to ascend to heaven, to go on Jeff Bezos' rockets? What is the Torah expecting of us? Now, again, it's counterfactual. But what does it mean that if the Torah was in the heavens, had the Torah indeed been placed in the heavens, it would be incumbent upon us to ascend to the heavens and to get it? If you have an answer, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Now, last week we had a question from Al. It was an Al special. Why in the declaration of the Bikurim, of the first fruits, when we talk about the history of the Jewish people and our antecedents, we talk about how Laban tried to destroy Jacob, but Laban's identity is masked and we call him the Aramean. Why don't we just spell it out, Laban? Now, Al asked the question, and Al is going to give us the answer. Moshe is teaching us a very powerful lesson. The Torah is teaching us a very powerful lesson. When you are giving thanks, you're taking your first fruits, and you're bringing them to Jerusalem, and you're thanking God, you're in a posture of gratitude in that moment, it's very important that you don't vilify anyone. And even terrible villains and terrible criminals like Laban, even he gets some cover. 
because it's not helpful. If you want to be giving thanks, you have a very positive energy, it's not helpful to focus on the negative. When you're working on a positive posture, even musing on someone's negative qualities can dampen that positive energy. Yes, there is room for finger-pointing and for vilifying the villains, but when you're working on showing your love and your appreciation and your gratitude, now is not the right time. I love this answer, and I hope you enjoy it as well. And again, this may or may not be the last new installment of the Parsha Podcast before Rosh Hashanah. If it is, have a Shana Tava If it's not, you should still have a Shana Tava Have an amazing rest of your week. If you would like me to include you in my prayers in the upcoming high holidays, please send me an email with your names. Have an amazing week. Have a fantastic and fabulous and splendid an enjoyable final Shabbos of the Jewish calendar. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week or maybe even this week. We'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe we'll see. Email address is rabbiwolbegimit.com.